Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I've always wanted to help the audience take their soul to the next level, so I've partnered with Mind Valley and other amazing free courses on spirituality, mind, body, soul, longevity, wealth, and so much more. All you need to do is go to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of this show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Now, today on the show, I welcome back Dr. John Demartini. And John is not only a expert in personal growth and transformation, but he is such an expert in so many things. I wanted to talk to him about the law of attraction, manifestation, and using quantum physics to explain it. John and I go into this deep conversation on how we can use the power of fifth dimensional manifestation what the secret and the law of attraction as it's known out today is missing, and so, so much more. So let's dive in. I would like to welcome back to the show, returning champion, Dr. John Demartini. How you doing, Dr. John? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. I had such a wonderful time talking to you. Uh, you were one of my earlier conversations, and the show has definitely uh, grown since the last conversation. But you definitely uh, made a mark because when you, when your team called me back, hey, do you want to have John back on the show? I'm like, absolutely. Uh, so thank you so much for coming back. No, thank you. You're the one helping me help other people. So that's that's my dream. So thank you. So today we really I wanted to get into a conversation about the law of attraction, about manifestation, because uh, in all of the conversations I've had on the show, I've never sat down and really dug deep into this concept. It's been, you know, sensationalized. There's a lot of misunderstandings out there, a lot of mis, a lot of misinformation out there about the law of attraction, about manifestation, and uh, who else better to talk about it than one of the, one of the amazing teachers who started the idea, really in the zeitgeist, uh, with that movie, that little movie you got, you were involved in, all those years ago called The Secret, which kind of planted the seed in in the in the zeitgeist of humanity about the law of attraction. So my first question to you is what really is this thing called the law of attraction? <laughs> I think it's a term that has been coined by Rhonda Byrne and some predecessors mm -hmm. that I think was a popular term. I don't know if there's a universal law called the law of attraction other than a magnetic attraction between opposite poles. Mm -hmm. of magnetism um, but i would like to develop it as it kind of was implied mm -hmm. uh in the movie and in order to do that i probably have to develop a few things if you don't mind please please go ahead and some may overlap a bit what we said previously but not a lot mm -hmm. in about 1978 that fall I was interested in why people do what they say and why people don't. Mm -hmm. Why are walking people walking and talking? Why are people limping their lives? Mm 
And I was trying to make a discernment between the distinctions between people who said they're going to do something and do it, and people who said they're not going to they're going to do it and not do it. And it boiled down to drive mm -hmm. and human values. And at the time, I started studying axiology, which is a study of value and worth in people. Mm -hmm. And much of what I read, and there is not a vast amount of literature on it, you, you could read it, someone, one individual could read it all, was geared towards morals and ethics, and then a little bit towards economics. Mm -hmm. And I was more than unsatisfied with what I saw out there. And I had to go deeper. And make more observations. I found that every human being regardless of age, gender, or culture, gender spectrum or culture, moment by moment is living with a set of priorities, a set of values, things they perceive to be more to least important, most to least important, more to, most to least or lesser important. And that those set of values or priorities is impacting their sensory perceptions, their decision-making process in the frontal cortex and frontal cortex, and their actions, motor actions, particularly in motor, upper controlled motor actions. So our perception, decisions, and actions, human behavior is a reflection or an expression of how our values are set up. Mm -hmm. I also found out that whatever's highest on the list of values, we would classify as intrinsic values. We spontaneously are inspired from within that require no external motivation to get us to do it. Like a boy who loves video games doesn't need to be motivated with reward if he does it, punishment if he doesn't, to get video games done. Mm -hmm. He may need that for something low on his values, maybe homework. But whatever's lower on the values, the lower it goes on the value list, the more extrinsically it is, extrinsic the values are, and it requires a reward to do it or a punishment to don't. You need an extrinsic force to get you to act. Mm -hmm. But it's not just motor actions. It's also sensory perceptions. You spontaneously sense with, see, the, the pulmonary nuclei in the thalamus is a gatekeeper and filter. And all the sensory information from the spinal senses coming through the spinal cord and even into the brain stem from the special senses all go through the, the relay center, the thalamus and filter it out according to what you value. Mm -hmm. So a mother whose highest value is her children, she's 35 and she has three children under the age of five. If she walks in a mall, she will spot with a selected biased attention, children's clothes, children's ed education, children's entertainment, children's healthcare. She'll filter out things that are, for her children mm -hmm. and overlook things that aren't. She won't be seeing business materials. Her husband, who may be an entrepreneur, um, now she could be an entrepreneur if it is, and that's her highest value, she will filter that. But her, if her highest value is children and his highest value is business, he will spot suits, computers, uh, what companies are the busiest in the mall to buy stock in. He'll be thinking in terms of a totally different reality. They'll both see completely different worlds. They literally filter their reality according to what they value most. Now, because of that selective biased attention, confirmation bias and, and false positives in the direction of what we value most and false negatives that we 
overlook things that are there in things that are lower on our values, we automatically filter our reality according to our value system. So our, not only is our priority of actions determined by them, but our sensory perceptions are determined by them. Now, when you set a goal, uh, an intention to do something or an attention to learn something, when it's congruent and aligned with your highest value, because of that, you will spot things in your environment that most people overlook unless they're living congruently. Mm-hmm. And they'll take actions on it. And they'll make decisions rapidly because they've got plenty of information and they'll spontaneously act. So that's why you spontaneously act in the things that are high on your values. And your epistemological knowledge is maximum in that area. Your teleological purpose is maximum in that area. And your ontological identity is maximal in that area. So you perceive yourself, if your highest value is, in my case, teaching as a teacher, uh, as a mother, as a mother, as an entrepreneur. Your identity revolves around your specialized knowledge is accentuated in that area and you feel your teleological purpose is that area. So one of the most significant things of the secret that was left out of the secret, it was mentioned in my interview, but it was not included, is don't waste your time on anything that's not highest on your value because you will filter out sensory awareness you will not take actions. You'll procrastinate, hesitate, and frustrate. You'll need external motivation to act. So the probability of you achieving the magic of the secret, the law of attraction, is really the degree of congruency you have with what is truly most important to you and pursue what's authentic. Because your ontological identity revolves around that, and that's the most authentic you. When the, when the Delphic Oracle said, know thyself, be thyself, love thyself, they're saying identify what you value most and pursue it and give yourself permission to go go after that. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But anytime you're doing something lower on your values, your sensory awareness filters it out. You don't see opportunity. You don't make decisions quick and you don't take actions without an external motivator. So you can't possibly compete with somebody who's congruent, who's living by highest values, as somebody who's not. So when people say, well, the secret didn't work for me, what it meant is that they were pursuing goals that were not congruent with what they valued most and expecting a magical thing to happen. Because anytime you do that, the unfulfillment that occurs puts you in the amygdala and makes you want now one-sided experiences to avoid pain, seek pleasure. And real objectives have pleasure and pain in it. And you're, you're not going to have a relationship without pleasure and pain. You're not going to have a goal without pleasures and pains, eases and difficulties. So you're most capable of embracing the synchronicities of these pairs of opposites of support and challenge, peace and war, positive, negative, et cetera, when you pursue what's really highest on your value. So the first principle of the law of attraction is that you maximize the opportunities the decisions and the actions, the synchronicities. In fact, what's interesting is when you're functioning from a lower value, your blood glucose and oxygen goes into the amygdala and you actually subjectively bias interpretations to survive and you have to go and seek it or have to avoid it. And so you're extrinsically affected by reward and punishment, prey and predator. But if you're setting goals that are aligned with the highest values, the blood glucose and oxygen goes into the executive center where you actually embrace hermetically, you embrace the pleasures and pains equally, and you pursue a true objective, which is balanced and neutral and non-impartial, 
And it is there where you actually achieve the greatest achievement. So getting into the highest value, waking up the executive function, governing the amygdala's impulses and instincts, which are the distractions, which keep you from being present, focused, and diligent towards a pursuit of a purpose and something inauthentic, you're not going to be able to take advantage of the synchronicities that occur. And when you're in your amygdala, you activate the autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic for the prey and the sympathetic for the predator, and you infatuate or resent or you impulse towards or you instinct away. And whenever you do that, you're, you're, you're not maximizing governance and you're automatically disen disengaging with what is there. You're, you're, you're living in a subjective distortion. In that moment, you automatically are shutting down your visual accessing to the, the visual occipital area. You're shutting down strategic planning. You're shutting down spontaneous action. You're shutting down self-governance. And then you get distracted and you have immediate gratification and you can't stay focused on a long-term aim to build incremental momentum to achieve something great. So the first thing is purely a grounded brain function of pursuing goals that are truly meaningful, that are truly high in priority and high value. That's the first principle of it. When that occurs, the autonomics come into synchronicity, the heart rate variability maximizes, you get a gamma wave in the brain because the alpha waves from the parasympathetic, I mean, the, the, the delta waves from the parasympathetic and the beta waves from the sympathetic are joined together in an eight cycle per second alpha theta state, which causes gamma synchronicity in the brain. And the brain now fires off integrated gestalt which is maximum brain function, maximum awareness, maximum mindfulness. And this is called synchronicity in the brain and you have synchronicity in function. Mm -hmm. So the, the synthesis and integration of the conscious and unconscious awareness at that moment is where we have maximum law of attraction. And now we're attracted our, to our innermost dominant thought. And we see the opportunities that are abounding around us that we can't normally see to take advantage of it and we think that because we're pursuing it, it's coming to us. But in reality, it's just there the whole time. We're waiting for us to be fully aware. Well, let me so ask that's you, the first grounded neurology approach to it. So is there is there a frequency that's attached to to these thoughts? You could put a frequency on it. Um, mm -hmm. I, I like to think of the brain as a scaled uh, function, mm -hmm. but I don't put it on a, a just a... I have to put that into a context. The speed in which you see both sides of an event mm -hmm. determines the frequency that you're on. So if you're infatuated with somebody and blinded to the downside <laughs> and you have the positive pull of the wave and you're blind to the downside, and then it takes a day, a week, a month, a year, or five years later before you see the downside, you're pretty dense. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's, that's a long wavelength. That's a dense Fokker. That's meet the Fokkers. Okay. Yeah, got it. If, you, if you're highly resentful to somebody and you're blind to the upsides, you're conscious of the downsides, unconscious of the upsides and blind to the upsides and ignorant of the upsides, you have ignorance and you're not seeing both sides. So mm. the inside the terrible is the terrific and inside the terrific is the terrible. And the, the two actually cancel each other into a completely neutral state. But our subjective bias for our amygdala makes them polarized and creates an emotional reaction. And every one of those emotional reactions are feedback mechanisms to let us know we're not seeing the whole. Emotions are feedback mechanisms that create epigenetic alterations in physiology and psychology to let us know we're not seeing the whole because mm -hmm. we're not, we're attracted or repelled 
We're undergoing motion towards or away instead of being poised and present and purposeful and patient and productive and prioritized where we actually have love for something. And so pursuing something you love is different than having an emotional impulse or an instinct to seek or avoid it where it's externally running you. Because whatever you infatuate or resent occupies space and time in your mind and runs you. And it's basically noise in the brain instead of the signal from the soul, you might say, you're getting noise, it's blocking the signal. So it, it's it, when you're in this polarized state, you have a long wavelength, lower frequency. When you see both sides and you have in a, a impartial state and you're in an objective, masterful state, when you're living by your highest value, you see both sides synchronously. Uh, Wilhelm Wandt, who is the father of experimental psychology in 1896, wrote that there are simultaneous, simultaneous contrast in sequential contrast. And simultaneous contrast is when you see both sides simultaneously and you have pure mindfulness. You're not unconscious apart. Mm. And sequential contrast is when you see one side and then later you see the other side. He said sequential contrast is survival. Simultaneous contrast is thrival. So when you have simultaneous contrast, you have the synthesis of the pairs of opposites, the synchronicity of their existence in a mindful state where you now are fully aware taking advantage of your sensory decision and, and motor actions and maximizing your potential. So that's the high frequency. Mm. And each thing that you're focusing on, if it's the highest frequency and it is the most objective and it is the most congruent and it's the most authentic pursuit, you master synchronicity and synthesis in the brain and you actually have the law of attraction instantaneously. There's no time. Anytime you add space and time to the soul, you might say, to the real authentic you, you have the existential world where you now have the limits of time and space. Mm. And that's where most people function in the limits of time and space. Instead of being present and actually seeing it, and it's then a feeling of it's impossible for it not to happen. It's already in motion. When Phelps, who got 22 medals right in swimming, when he would see it in his mind's eye and be present with it and was purely an objective and it was highest on his value to master swimming, he was able to manifest the law of attraction nonstop, one after another, and get 22 gold medals. Yeah, at a level that nobody else has ever done, without without question. No one else has done. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you might have martial artists like Bruce Lee and his and his, or or Michael Jordan in their fields. In their fields, right? but not but, but not specifically what he does. Yeah, not in that area. But your innermost dominant thought becomes your outermost tangible reality in the moment you have synchronicity and authenticity in the frontal cortex of the brain. So, so basically, because everyone, even those other two examples you said, Michael Jordan, a Kobe Bryant, or a Bruce Lee, their highest priority was their art form, which was either martial arts, basketball, or swimming. So when they went into, let's say, pre-visualization, in their mind's eye, creating the shot, going out and winning the game, going out and achieving what they wanted. It was because of the alignment and the the power yes. frequency of the alignment of their of their greatest, most important thing to them that aligned them. So, in other words, if I if basketball is fifth on my list, and family, money, a million other things, partying, other things are above it. I'm not going to be able to manifest the success in that field that other people like Kobe Bryant, who was legendarily obsessive 
uh, and Michael Jordan, who was legendary upset. All of these were legendary obsesses about what they were doing. That is what supercharges, if you will, the law of attraction or manifestation. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But I would like to add one thing. Instead of using obsessive, because that's an amygdala response, Uh inspired. Fair enough. Fair enough. Inspired. Because obsessive would mean the external world is controlling you and you can't control it. Inspired is this is a, this is when the human will matches what is, Mm -hmm. and you now have no conflict between uh, what is and what you're intending. See, when you're in the amygdala and you're infatuated with somebody, let's say, Mm -hmm. you're minimizing yourself to them and injecting their values and trying to live like them. And you now have an obsession. When you are resenting somebody, you're exaggerating yourself and you have an obsession to fix them or change them. Mm-hmm. But when you're in the center and you love what you're doing and you don't need to fix it, it's it's a feeling of it's impossible for you not to fulfill. It's already done. There's mm-hmm. no time in the future it needs to be done. It's already there. You extract out space and time in mind and become present with the image, not imagination, which is future, but the image of your pursuit. Well, let me ask you, is does quantum physics have an explanation for manifestation and in, in what it's discovered? I, I don't want to use uh, quantum physics as uh, so much of an explanation as more of a metaphorical, metaphorical correlation. Fair enough. Because it has tremendous metaphysical correlation. So let me give that example. In 1947, <clears throat> Paul Dirac published a fantastic book on particle nanoparticle is on the principles of quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. I read this book when I was 18 with the help of a lot of dictionaries. <laughs> and in there, I was awakened to something that, that impacted my life vastly since. He's the one that came up with the idea from Einstein's equation and also from Schrodinger's equation that there has to be an antiparticle for every particle. So he's the one that created that idea. And this is basically because of complex mathematics and square roots of negative ones. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And and I could go into that for a long distance. But because of that, he said that if you take a particle and a particle and they were to collide like in a particle collider at Geneva and join, they would burst gamma light, gamma photons. So Mm -hmm. if a positron, which is a positive electron, an electron, a negative charge electron, were to join together to make a couple gamma particles of light, high energy light. When I saw that, I thought, well, that's interesting. And if you took light photon, gamma photons, and put them in a bubble chamber, they would spin in opposite spirals, angular momentums, and reveal bubbles in the chamber, revealing particle and a particle. And I thought, Einstein's equation said energy is equal to mc squared. That means you can take energy in the form of photons and turn it into particle nanoparticles and has a positive negative charge in front of it. So that's where Dirac got the idea. Well, if you can take those positive and negative charges and make light. When I was 18, in my naivety, I thought, I wonder what would happen if you took positive and negative emotions. Could you make enlightenment? (laughs) That's interesting. So that was my thought at 18. So I went out on a pursuit to create a methodology for that. Mm-hmm. successfully. I've got it today. Now, 
there's a there's a gentleman when I read that, I also happened to read another book by by Leibniz, the German philosopher who was involved with the calculus at the same time Newton was doing the calculus. And Leibniz, in his first chapter, the first part of his discourse on metaphysics text, said that there was a perfection in the universe, a hidden order in the universe that few people ever got to know, but those that did, their lives were changed forever. And when I read that, I got a tear in the eye. I'm sure you've read books and you get a tear and you just go, mm -hmm. you know, there's something here. Mm -hmm. And I said, I want to know what this perfection is. I want to know what this order is. So I started studying thermodynamics and probabilistic stochastic systems and all kinds of things to go and try to figure out what this order is. And there was a gentleman, Claude Shannon, and two other guys who got a Nobel Prize uh, that on information theory. And I found out that the term disorder, the tendency for go to order to disorder, which was entropy, and the tendency to go from disorder to order, which was negative entropy or negentropy, which was life versus death, that it was going from fully understanding the order, full information to missing information. He called entropy missing information. Disorder was missing information. So Boltzmann in his work on thermodynamics said that the probabilistic theories of, of these probabilities of, of random movements may not be the complete story. There may be missing information. It led to hidden variables theory and quantum theory. So when I, when I went and started studying this, I said, what's the missing information? How do we access it? And then I realized that the quality of our life is based on the quality of the questions we ask. If we ask questions that are wise, that equilibrate the mind and allow us to see the synchronicity and synthesis of complementary opposites, we can access and discover a hidden order in the apparent chaos, in the so-called disorder. Mm -hmm. And emotions are called emotional disorders. Because mm -hmm. if you're attracted to something repelled, it's actually running you. But enlightenment is not a disorder. It's recognizing the implicate order, the hidden order, as Bohm would describe it. And so I went on a pursuit of asking questions to make the unconscious conscious so you can be fully conscious. That's what our intuition is constantly doing. Our, our, our intuition is a negative feedback system striving for homeostatic authenticity that's attempting to make the unconscious conscious so we can be fully conscious. But the impulses and instincts of the amygdala is trying to separate them and create an unconscious conscious split. So we're trying to divide the indivisibles and name the inevitables and label the unlabelables and split the unsplittables and separate the inseparables with the amygdala. And we're integrating them in the forebrain. It's the integrated center. And according to Scientific American September, October edition last year, they talked about it at the seat of the self. The integrated center was this medial prefrontal cortex in the brain mm -hmm. where it integrates the information. We have the greatest a number of inner neurons that integrate information and the greater the sample size of inner neurons, the greater the mean distribution, therefore the more poised and present you are. So we literally have the capacity to ask questions to the mind and awaken unconscious information to make us fully conscious of the pairs of opposites that are synchronous and simultaneous and wake up an enlightened state. And that is something that we're capable of doing, but the brain automatically does it if we pursue the highest value. And the highest value was called the telos by Aristotle. And he knew this in his time. He knew that the, to maximize human potential was to pursue the telos, the mm -hmm. end in mind. Just like we have telomeres, the end of the genes, we have telocephalon, the end of the brain, telomeres and tele, tele, teleology. Teleology was a study of meaning and purpose. It was the most meaningful and purposeful, most spontaneously inspiring thing we can be doing. 
So if we prioritize our life and fill our day with that one thing, that highest priority, and keep to our primary objective, our chief aim, if you will, or Napoleon Hill called it, we automatically maximize objectivity, which is neutrality, where we have the most resilience, adaptability, and we maximize the law of attraction and the secret. And if we don't, and we allow ourselves to get distracted by lower priority things from injected values of all the people we compare ourselves to, we automatically get into the amygdala and we automatically polarize ourselves and disempower ourselves, a house that's divided. We now go from enlightenment into positive and negative emotional charges where those things are running us. And that's called noise in the brain. It's literally called static. It shows up as facilitation and inhibitions in the brain. It shows up neurotransmitters in the form of glutamate and GABA frequencies. And there's a modulator in the center of which intuition awakens N-acetyl aspartate, which is a modulator that integrates those twos and synchronizes them. Our neurochemistry, our psychology, our physics have such correlations, it's mind-blowing. But mm. you, you don't want to say that it's a quantum state necessarily because we can't prove that yet. But we do know that neuroassociations in the brain and their anti-memories of associations can be entangled simultaneously in the brain. That's the closest correlates we've got right now. And in some of the subcellular components, there seem to be quantum effects there. But we, we definitely have correlations with quantum physics in that perspective. And so even Lucifer from scientific and uses that term sometimes. So it's kind of what you just what you just said was is similar to quantum entanglement. Uh, the two things. It's like the, quantum entanglement. Yeah. The memory. In fact, if you look in Neuron Magazine, March 17, 2016, there is a fantastic article on the potential for neuroentanglement in the brain in the sense of memory and anti-memory or conscious and unconscious content. Now, I've been doing and studying that contrast since 1978-9. Mm -hmm. I wrote a book on perceptual illusions and how they caused illness back then. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I was very fascinated by these contrasts because we don't sense without contrast. It's called the law of contrast. Mm -hmm. Imagine this. You take a, a, a cold beaker of water that's uh, 40 degrees. And you take another beaker of water that's 140 degrees. And you put another beaker in the middle of it that's 72. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. If you take your hand and put it in the cold water and hold it there for a minute, it's quantitatively 40 degrees. Mm -hmm. You stick it in the quantitative 72 degrees and you will swear that it's hotter than it is subjectively mm -hmm. because of the law of contrast. If you didn't have something to compare it to, you'd get a 72 reading in your hand. But because you compared it to something you perceived as colder, you now make it warmer. And if you take it and stick it in 140 degrees, because of the law of contrast, you stick it in that te tepid water, it now seems colder. So you get subjective bias the moment you compare in contrast. And all of our senses are contrast. All the phenomenological world of the senses are contrast. We can't perceive without a contrast. If we're in a completely white room, we can't see. Completely black room, we can't see. Saying you put contrast, you can see. Same thing for bioral fusions in the, in the ears. You can't hear unless you have contrast. All the senses, two-point discrimination, contrast on the senses. So without that contrast, if we had simultaneous contrast, we would have in that enlightened state. And then we would maximize the law of attraction because we would not separate in time and space. The moment we separate things in space and time and judge something subjectively with a bias, we lost the law of attraction. We dim diminished its power. The law of attraction is simultaneous when we're actually present. 
So what is it? So what are, what are the mistakes that people make that that stop them from manifesting things in their own life? They're pursuing things that aren't truly most important, mm-hmm. which forces them to go into the amygdala, which then forces them into polarized fantasies, a pleasure without a pain, a happy without a, a, a sad, a nice without a mean, a kind without a cruel. So, and why is it not happening? Why am I a victim? And they become more victimized because the other side that comes with it now feels more painful because of the contrast, the law of contrast. So if you're not looking for a fantasy, you don't feel life is a nightmare. But depression is a comparison of your current reality to a fantasy that you're addicted to, an unrealistic expectation. But if you set an objective, which is balanced, and you know both sides are there, when mm. you get married to somebody, you're going to have both sides. Nice, sure. mean, kind, cruel, negative. Mm. So you, the real objective is bracing both sides simultaneously, not pursuing a one side. So people that are living in the amygdala want to avoid pain and seek pleasure, which is not possible. It's like trying to divide a magnet. And the Buddha says the desire for that which is unobtainable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable is a source of human suffering. So people suffer because they're pursuing a one-sided state with their amygdala. They're not setting up a high-priority action that's an objective. It's not congruent. They're subordinating because they're comparing themselves to other people and go, I want to be like them. And they're envying somebody else. They're trying to imitate somebody else. They're trying to be second at being Elvis instead of first being themselves. And then they end up polarizing their brain and disempowering themselves because they're divided. And anytime you're infatuate, resent, you have disowned parts and you disempower your life. And that's where the secret doesn't work. And that's why people say, well, the secret didn't work for me because they pursued a fantasy that wasn't congruent with their highest values. And they expected an outcome with immediate gratification, which the amygdala does instead of a long-term vision of pursuing something with meaning. Fantastic answer, sir. Because it's so it's absolutely so true because when you go, I want to win the lottery. Or I want to date this movie star. Uh, They're fantasies. They're fantasies. And if they're not aligned with what you're trying to do, and also see the positive and negative of it. because And doesn't that happen with with relationships, like you were saying? You look at a beautiful woman and you're like, oh my God, all you see is the positive. But it takes you a year, two years, five years, 10 years, a lifetime sometimes to figure out that there's there's something else that came with that package. (laughs) When I go on a date... When I go on a date, I already have a list of all my, uh, there's 4,628 traits I found in the dictionary, the Oxford English Dictionary. Half of them are positive, half are negative. I went ahead and listed them and I said, here's the positives, here's the negatives. If you expect anything but all of those, you have a delusion. (laughs) Call me when you're ready to embrace all of those because that's who I am. That's that's amazing. So let me ask. By the way, you you need to have a mouth and an anus. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you need to be able to, you need to have a mouth and an anus. Because if you don't have an anus, you're full of crap. You need both sides. You need to be an ass and you need to be a good kisser. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the very true, my friend. Very true. So I wanted to go back to something we were talking about earlier with the uh with Bruce Lee and, and Michael Jordan, Kobe and, and Phelps. What is it about visualization that is so powerful? in the mind when it's associated with manifestation or law, we use it basically more of the, the, the concept of manifestation because athletes do this. I mean, I've, I've heard the studies where the, the, the basketball coach will sit down with half the team thinking about making the basket and the other team actually practicing for the same time. And the people who thought about it, get it in more than the people that physically practiced. What is the science behind that? What is going on there or the mysticism behind that? 
Well, I don't think we need to even have mysticism on it. We can add that for fun, but sure. um, let, let's imagine that you're going out and you're a single guy or a married guy acting single and you're out <laughs> looking for a, you know, a girl for the night or something. Sure. And you go to a party and there's a thousand people there. Would you agree that you can scan that entire room and go desirable, undesirable, desirable, undesirable, desirable, ooh, very desirable, ooh, undesirable, and rule people out with visual very quickly. Oh, you within go seconds. to a thousand yeah. people in a matter of minutes. Yeah. Sure, okay? sure, sure. Now, if you had to use your auditory function, had to listen to every one of them, would that be as efficient? No. No. If you had to smell every one of them and get close enough to smell them, Mm -hmm. Would that be even less efficient? Yes, it would not be efficient at all. If you had to taste him, how, how efficient <laughs> would that be? More interesting, possibly, but not efficient. <laughs> and if you touch them, see, I, I did a research project. Now, this is a joke, but I did this so-called so research project where I went out and I blinded myself. I put earmuffs on. I put a nose thing on there. And all I could do is lick and touch. And I went into a thousand room to try to find a girlfriend for the night. You are going to be put in jail or killed or kicked <laughs> very carefully if you try that approach. Exactly. Now, but you can see farther than you can hear. You can hear farther than you can smell. You can smell farther than you can taste. You can taste farther than you can touch because mm -hmm. smell and taste go together. Mm -hmm. So the most efficient in the brain is visual because to survive, there's a thing called camouflage in prey and predator. Mm -hmm. And you've got to be able to see past the camouflage and identify with pareidolia and the fusiform complex in the cortex, be able to turn, what, is that a prey or a predator? And assign agenticity and pareidolia, facial understanding, recognition. And then you've got to have false positives and negatives in order to make sure you get the adrenaline running fast enough to catch the prey or avoid the predator. So we are designed to use visual systems to accomplish things. Mm -hmm. And when you go up and look up, if 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 I if, just look at your attitude, just sit up straight for a second. You'll have some fun with this. Sit up really straight, and take your your head and keep it straight towards the camera. Mm -hmm. But now take your eyes and look down to the right, down to the right, mm -hmm. down to the right with your eye, not your head. Keep your head straight. Put your head straight. Mm -hmm. Eyes down right, forty five degrees. Really stretch them. Yeah. And try to smile. Try to smile. It's fake. Still completely, <laughs> completely. Now try to frown, frown, and it feels more real. It does. Why is that? Okay, now, now look up to the left. Look up to the left, forty-five degrees. Look up to the left, not head. Mm -hmm. And now try to frown. Fake. But smile mm -hmm. feels more natural. Why is that? Your your brain is automatically set up. Where if you're looking up, it's visual. If you're looking down, it's kinesthetic. And feeling is not as effective as sight in ach achieving things. Mm -hmm. Now, the forebrain, when you're pursuing what's highest on your value, the forebrain has connections to V5, V6 associative cortex in the visual occipital core center, mm -hmm. occipital mm -hmm. center. From the amygdala, we don't have that connection. So when the biblical statement said those with a vision flourish and those without a vision perish, they're describing executive functions, medial prefrontal cortex, which is the seat of the cell, the authentic you can see. 
And it uses the associative areas to strategically plan most effectively to make decisions where the amygdala can't see. It's got blind sight and it feels, it goes into emotions. So we now are caught and we're now either seeking or avoiding. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So our brain is automatically set up for visual system for maximized visual. That one, one picture is worth a thousand words. It's more efficient. A thousand words are better than a bunch of smells. <laughs> it's primitive. But we, we have, the, the smell is for great for survival, but vision is great for thrival. And those are the vision of the people. And so the visionaries are always the leaders. When I was speaking years ago in 1983, I was asked to come and speak at a conference. There's about five or 6,000 people. And I walked around the convention center. I noticed there were breakout rooms and there were mechanics and technicians in little breakout rooms of 50 or 60 people. There were management groups in 200 to 400 people. And the main audience were the visionaries, the inspiring visionaries. And I saw, I want to play there. I want to be an inspired visionary. I want to delegate management and I want to delegate technology. No, anytime you do what inspires you most, that is the vision that you hold in your mind and delegate the management of administration and delegate technologies to others, you excel and automatically lead the field. But if you sit there and have to be doing the the day-to-day work on the technology or manage people with administration, you're going to not go as far as you can visually. Visual systems are far more powerful. The visionaries are the leaders. Well, we Alan ta- McKenzie in his book, The Time Trap, describes this in very much detail. Well, you're talking about the the physical vision. I'm talking about the internal vision. Or are they they're the, the same. same. Yeah, they're the same. They're the same. Same areas of the brain are working. Internal, you have what is called introceptive information coming out of the physiology. But you have in your vision, you, your brain doesn't know the difference between something like in a dream. You think it's real at times, right? but there's nothing out there. It's, it's, your brain is in, in, in nighttime. You can realize how much your visual internal visual is just as real as the external world. So mm. if you see it in your mind's eye, I, I have a painting. I want to show you a painting. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think I've did, didn't I show you a painting of the, the vision last year? I think no, I the did. last time we did it. I think we did. I'm not sure. It's been Let me a while. see if I can find this. Let me see if I can find this. This is interesting, I think. Um, nope. So this is a vision that I saw when I was 17. Mm-hmm. I didn't have, I got it painted. Well, I didn't paint it, but a, I was speaking about the vision when I was 17 and 15 years ago. And a painter was in the audience and he painted the vision that I did and sent it to me as a gift. And this mm-hmm. is what he sent me. The vision I saw. Uh-huh. I see it. Yeah. Uh, the vision I saw is speaking in front of a million people with an iconic building of every major city around the world behind it. <laughs> it's beautiful. Now, I've spoken in 192 countries now. <laughs> wow. So that vision has been, it, been with me since 17. I also, I could pull it up, but it would take a minute. I also, when I saw the movie on Houdini, uh, I was inspired. He did the water torture chamber, the Chinese water torture chamber in front of the audience. He got a standing ovation and royalty was up in the upper left balcony at the Palladium in London. Mm-hmm. 
And when I did, I cut a picture that I took a frame out of the, the video, made a picture out of it, put and cut and paste me in it. And I'm standing and taking over Houdini. In 2008, I was asked to speak at the Palladium. It was completely packed, more than 2,000 people. Royal, two people from the royal family were in the upper left balcony. And I did a presentation for a full day there. At the end, I told the story and I bowed exactly the way he did. And I said, this was a vision. It started at age 20. I'm finally here. Isn't that, it, it's, it's, it's so, I, but I have to ask you though, with something as simple as, is well, not as simple, but as complex as that vision, how is there not some sort of mysticism or mystical energies working through that? I, I, I don't want to say there is because whatever we think is somehow mystical, eventually we find out and understand it, how it works. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to, we can, we can use that term. That's perfectly fine, mm -hmm. but I don't want to leave it at that. I've been on a pursuit of understanding uh, the mysteries. Mm -hmm. I've been studying the mysteries all these years, 50 years. Mm -hmm. And things that we once thought were a mystery are not a mystery today. Correct. I mean, we stop and just take a look at it. At, at the time of Aristotle and Plato, even though he had predecessors, Pythagoras and Philolus and, Ar and Arist Aristarchus, they all had a heliocentric system. But Aristotle and later Ptolemy in the AD period uh, created a geocentric system. So they had a heliocentric system back then. You can read Aristarchus. He had a heliocentric system. But it wasn't popular yet. Because Aristotle for 2,000 years suppressed the, the heliocentric system for his theological construct of the, the ground, the earth and the heavens. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of suppressed, but the heliocentric system was there. So the mysticism that went around, that influenced uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, all of those religious, five billion people follow that still to this day, are Aristotle's. Hmm. But when Thomas Wright started to look at the telescopes and Galileo started seeing telescopes and they started realizing, oh my God, there's nebula and there's, uh, there's galaxies. And then the Hubble telescope comes out and these things we see now are cosmic webs of galaxies and super galaxy clusters. Our paradigm has expanded vastly and is expanding as, as fast as the speed of light. And, and we still are learning at incredible speeds. Now we've got the James Webb telescope. Our cosmology and our theology have had to adapt. Mm -hmm. But what we, what we once thought was a mystery, we have some understanding of today. You know, we would, they, they said at the time of Newton that it would be impossible for any human being to be able to put the mathematics together between the perturbations of all the gravitational folds of all of the planets, let alone all the solar systems that are stars in the galaxy. But he figured it out. Man, we added to that with Einstein, and now we're putting with quantum gravity, and we're going to keep refining it. So what was once a mystery is now history. And I'm a firm believer that, you know, it... We have to be taught the illusions till we're ready for truth. So I don't want to say that it's stuck as a mystery that will never uh, solve it. I'd rather keep pursuing and have holy curiosity and keep solving the mysteries as we go and keep at the cutting edge of as many disciplines as I can to try to solve those. Because we may just discover that it wasn't a mystery after all. We solved it because they thought that was a mystery at one time. And there's a lot of things that we now understand that we thought were mysteries. 
We, we at one time human beings at one time human beings were frightened of thunder, weren't they? Oh. And they had a thunder god. Oh. And course. they were frightened of lightning, and they had a lightning god. And then they the were sun, frightened of the, the sun drought. and the moon. Yeah, the sun. Yeah. The sun and the moon. So, so whatever frightened human beings got them in the amygdala, created an anthropomorphic mechanism because that was the most comforting thing as a human form, and projected anthropomorphic ideas onto their deities. And more deities are extinct than there are alive today. So I don't want to, I don't want to leave it as a mysticism. I would say it's an unsolved mystery today that will be solved tomorrow, somewhere in the future, a thousand years, 200 years, a hundred years. So I'd rather try to find the most under the greatest understanding of why these things occur. And I do believe that there, we will discover probably sensory acuities that we don't know we have today. We'll probably discover entanglements between people which i already suspect and then all of a sudden what was mystical is now understood oh so i have a feeling that that's what the future is without without question my friend um i'm going to ask you a few questions i ask all my guests uh what is your definition of living a good life i don't use the word good life i call it a fulfilling life because i don't like to put moral language onto life Okay. Because moral hypocrisies undermine maximum fulfillment, in my opinion. You just automatically try to get rid of half of yourself with moral language. Fair enough. And it's and there's no scientific evidence for a moral language. It's just an artificial thing coming from religions and politicians and people that are been mm-hmm. wounded by things and social sure. contracts and mm-hmm. all kind of things. So I don't I don't like to use the word good and evil. I just use fulfilling because we can fulfill in our mind, what we perceived is missing in our awareness. So I use the word fulfilling. So a, a fulfilled life is the pursuit of that which is most meaningful, most inspiring, most authentic, most highest on our values, and prioritizing our life and giving ourselves permission to live in the high priority manner and delegate lower priority things. Because anytime you're living by the highest priority, your self-worth goes up, your creativity goes up, your genius goes up, your solution orientation goes up, your brain functions at its maximum, your desire to want to contribute and solve problems and, and your reflective awareness and your ability to have synchronicity all go up. The evidence is, is more than evident there. So I'd rather just pursue fulfillment through prioritization. And you know that's why I teach, research, write, and travel. I don't do anything else. I delegate the rest. I even got a clock changer in my on my ship here. Somebody <laughs> that changed my clock if we go to different time zones. <laughs> Good. How do you define God? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Ooh, this is something that uh, many people have uh, confronted it. I like to think of it as, as the, the non-anthropomorphic synthesis and synchronicity of all complementary opposites that are superimposed and entangled in a fully aware mind that are simultaneously able to be perceived by an individual who truly is graced and loved. Beautiful answer, sir. And what is the ultimate purpose of life? Well, there is no ultimate purpose to that would encompass all people because everybody's got their own filter and their own vantage points mm-hmm. and their own voids and everything else. So it's meaning is what we give it. Mm-hmm. But because the uh, 
set of values in society are set up like antonyms and synonyms. For every individual that has a set of values, there's somebody with the opposite set. What's irony is you typically marry them. And the purpose <laughs> of that is to find somebody you can delegate lower priority things to, and they can delegate lower priority things to you so you can have fulfillment. That's a bit of a joke. But there is a law of heuristic escalation in sociology that says that anytime you try to promote a something, the equal and opposite system will come up to counterbalance it to make sure that we have both build and destroy cooperative and competitive. So, you know, support and challenge peace of war, all pairs of opposites have to be there to maximum growth and develop development. So ultimately, there's a dialectic between those thesis and antithesis, those, those predicates. And as a result of that thesis, synthesis, I define that as love. Love's the synthesis and synchronous of all compromise opposites. And that's though the divine nature, if you will. So our ultimate divine nature, our ultimate purpose in life is the realization that we're participating in a matrix of that and to honor all parts of ourself and all the parts we disown and see that whatever we see in others is inside us, where the seer, the seeing, and the seen are the same and that includes everything. As Schopenhauer is supposedly said to said, uh, we become our true self to the degree that we make everything else ourself. And that would be the ultimate objective to have pure reflective awareness and to see the synchronicity and synthesis of all compromise opposites simultaneously and be present, which would be the same definition of, of love and God. And where, self enlightenment. And where can people find out more about you and the amazing work you're doing? The easiest way to find me is just go to drdmartini.com or do, go to the Dr. Demartini show or something. Just type in my name and it's going to, I'm going to come up because I got a lot of, there's a lot out there and uh, you will, you will find me. I don't think you'll have any problem. If as long as you spell my name, right, Demartini or some close to it, it's all one word, D-E-M-A-R-T-I-N-I. -I. If you type in Demartini, you'll find me. And do you have any final messages for the audience, John? Yeah, uh, give yourself permission to shine. And don't waste your time comparing yourself to other people. Don't people put people on pedestals or pits. Put them in your heart. And compare your daily actions to your own highest value. The more congruent you are, the more empowered you'll be, the more inspired you'll be, the more the synchronicities occur, the more the law of attraction, as they want to call it, uh, manifests. And the more creative you are, and the more you get to create, live by design, not duty. So give yourself permission to be you. The magnificence of who you are is far greater than any fantasies you'll impose on yourself. Dr. Martini, thank you so much for this conversation. It was truly a pleasure and an honor talking to you again, my friend. Thank you, and keep up the amazing work you're doing to help awaken people around the world. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be with your audience and the show and for the great questions. Thank you. <sighs> I want to thank John so much for coming on the show and sharing his knowledge with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 238. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.